Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here solo this week. Chris is in the woods enjoying his post-Christmas break. And on today's show, we're going to discuss the fragility of Bitcoin, its challenges, and its resilience. Let's take a high-level view and try to be calm about the many potential pitfalls that threaten this experiment. Nigeria has removed its Bitcoin banking ban in favor of a more regulated approach to try to control cryptocurrency usage in the country. Ocean Pool, Luke Dasher's Bitcoin mining pool, has added new block template options that do not filter transactions according to the Bitcoin Knots template. I think this has been a really interesting story because this pool really seems like a good faith attempt to resist some of the centralization problems of Bitcoin mining pools. But Bitcoin Knots and its take on Bitcoin consensus has proved a stumbling block. So this has been very interesting. In economics, Arthur Hayes has a great article that really lays out the data behind the view that Bitcoin is a hedge against fiat debasement. And he also lays into other altcoin projects and protocols and crypto selling points that we're probably going to encounter in the next year and explains why their value proposition is really not there and and their issues, some of them. In altcoins, Vitalik Buterin, one of Ethereum's founders, thinks that Ethereum's technical debt is undermining its functionality and they may need to centralize it further just to get it to work. That's kind of an interesting story that we've been talking about for a long time. Now, Vitalik seems to be on board with our point of view that Ethereum has always been kicking the can down the road, adding complexity instead of fundamental security. And then in Bitcoin education, BTC Pay Server, a self-hosted Bitcoin backend, one of their plugins, Ellen Bank, has been discontinued after two serious vulnerabilities. I think this is a pretty interesting story because Ellen Bank is, is trying to do something similar to Fediments or Cashew, creating a custodial Bitcoin option that someone else is running, but you know, with different trade-offs. So we can talk about that. And then Seth for Privacy, who I think was maybe the first guest on this podcast, has a really awesome guide to building your own Bitcoin mining pool. Very actionable, a lot of Linux knowledge in there. So I, I want to link to that and congratulate him on that uh, excellent piece of work. And then we have Feedback and Boost, and that's our show. Now, I think that on this show, we often talk about the technical limitations of Bitcoin and sort of try to deflate a little bit of the utopian optimism that people who are just into Bitcoin can sometimes get swept up in. And it's not because your Bitcoin dad is just a downer, though that might be part of the issue. It's also that just because something is really, really good, the human mind tends to just extrapolate and project this functionality forward until it's a panacea that solves all issues. And I think history has demonstrated that unbridled optimism can be a very dangerous thing, especially when you combine that optimism with financial markets. So we often talk about the threats to Bitcoin, what could limit it, what could kill it. And uh, Bitcoin Fortress has a newsletter that is interesting, high-level take on this. And one of the most obvious threats to Bitcoin in the coming years is going to be regulatory. For the first decade of its existence, Bitcoin was so small, it basically flew under the radar. And the issues of the fiat currency system were being managed to an extent that interest in Bitcoin was mostly contained in 
very ideological communities like libertarians or sort of hard money gold bugs, or in completely disenfranchised communities that don't have access to financial services. For instance, your Bitcoin dad is familiar with Nigerian traders. They were trading goods. They wanted to buy goods from China and sell them in Nigeria, but they were, for some reason, unable to get the correct licenses or permissions to do fiat US dollar bank transfers from Nigeria to China. And so what they were doing was they were using Bitcoin. They would sell Bitcoin for Chinese yuan, take the yuan, buy goods with it, send the goods to Nigeria, sell it for Nigerian dollars, and then buy Bitcoin again so they could rinse and repeat. And this sort of activity, it's very entrepreneurial, very interesting, but it's relatively small volumes, and it just didn't really attract a huge amount of regulatory backlash. At this current moment, where the cracks in the fiat system seem to deepen every day, I think there's a more widespread interest in protecting oneself from the uncertainty of a U.S. government that is issuing over a trillion dollars of new debt every quarter, of a European Union that has serious structural issues and is talking about instituting a state-controlled central bank digital currency as part of a way to financially control their citizens and keep that fragile monetary standard going. Wherever you look, you can see signs of financial and monetary distress. And that means that the existing legacy fiat system is going to feel more defensive. It's going to feel more threatened by monetary alternatives. And that's coincided with a very long legal battle in the U.S., where proponents of a Bitcoin ETF have sort of finally gotten the U.S. courts to push the SEC and regulators to approve one. And it's likely that we will see a Bitcoin ETF in the next month, frankly. So what's the threat here? Well, the threat is that a Bitcoin ETF is not Bitcoin. It's paper Bitcoin. The reason that gold, or part of the reason that gold failed as a monetary instrument was that it was centralized in regulated custodians. And once it went into these custodians, the gold never came out. And since gold is no longer in circulation, only these paper claims on it are, the paper claims themselves are like fiat. They can be increased arbitrarily. They can be used as derivatives and very complex transactions that are hard to understand. And so the centralization of gold really killed it as a monetary instrument. And I think there's an argument that centralizing Bitcoin into institutional custodians like those that service ETFs could put Bitcoin on a similar trajectory. I think that the silver lining here is that because Bitcoin ETFs could potentially allow more traditional finance money to sort of get Bitcoin price exposure, it has the potential to really supercharge the next bull market and make Bitcoin a much more valuable asset. I think that as Bitcoin becomes more valuable, as its market cap increases, as the amount of value that can kind of be transmitted by this network increases, this increases the network effects of Bitcoin and could actually aid its adoption. And the issue is, will ETFs become a preferred method to hold Bitcoin? Or are they a stepping stone into a financial system where Bitcoin is one of its major rails? And we don't know yet, but I think that the jury is still out. And so we have to see how the Bitcoin ETF launches go and whether there's interest, whether they're Bitcoin killers, or if they are just merely another Bitcoin derivative, and we've had many of those in the past. Another issue is technical vulnerabilities. And this 
will become clear later in the episode when we talk about Ethereum and how its founder, Vitalik, is very concerned about the technical debt that seems to be spilling over into all areas of the Ethereum ecosystem and undermining its resilience and decentralization. One of the most common pieces of FUD is, oh, if there's going to be quantum computing, quantum computers will be able to brute force private keys from public key addresses, and boom, all your Bitcoin's gone. And I think that that is a pretty stupid piece of FUD because, to be frank, I don't think anyone outside of the very specific niche of quantum physics understands how quantum computers work. I've listened to many talks on the subject, read a lot about it, and I don't understand how quantum computers work. It's just beyond me. At the same time, what I've garnered is that quantum computers are not magical. They do not collapse multiple realities into a solution to problems. It's not It's not like that. It's just a different sort of computational architecture that is very suitable for some problems, but currently not private key brute forcing. That said, if we compare Bitcoin to Ethereum, Bitcoin has a relatively simple code base, a relatively straightforward security model. And Ethereum gave up those advantages in favor of technical complexity so it could market itself as a green alternative. And when you put it in those terms, it, it sounds like a very poor trade-off. Getting a bit of marketing excitement, but sacrificing your future upgrade paths and your sort of uh, technical debt load in the process. So I'm very bullish on Bitcoin and its ability to technically adapt to future advances in cryptography and code breaking. And I think that part of the reason that we haven't seen the bleeding edge of cryptography on Bitcoin yet, and I'm talking about these structures like signature aggregation, snarks, ZK rollups, these sort of things that allow you to take a lot of data and kind of compress it into a proof and save space and therefore increase bandwidth on the main chain. Those aren't in Bitcoin yet because they just haven't been needed. The fee pressure hasn't been high enough to sort of force integration of those technologies. The current system works pretty well. And so if it's not broke, don't fix it. I think that's kind of a Bitcoin development perspective here. So those things may come to Bitcoin in the future, and we may see quantum resistance built in at a protocol level as those technologies are ready and needed, but not before. I also think that scalability issues are a real concern for Bitcoin going forward and at present. And again, Bitcoin has opted for a layered scaling approach where the base chain, the Bitcoin blockchain, remains relatively simple, but you can do things on top of it, like open lightning channels or try to incorporate side chains into the Bitcoin blockchain through various models like Liquid. Drive chains is another proposal. There's even a Ethereum virtual machine sidechain that runs on Bitcoin. The name escapes me. I don't think it's particularly popular. And I think, again, scalability is an issue because during bull markets, when a lot of interest flares up, suddenly fees spike on the main chain, it can get clogged up, you can get a huge amount of transactions in the mempool. We're kind of already seeing that. At the same time, I think that high fees create a market incentive to solve this problem. They suggest that there's money to be made by building higher layer scaling technologies. And in many ways, it was the high fees of 2017 that prompted the development of the Lightning Network, and we're enjoying those savings today. And so I think that while these high fee periods can be stressful for Bitcoiners, 
they prompt development. And so I'm relatively bullish on scalability in the future in the face of high fee pressure. So I just wanted to get into some of these high-level discussion points because it's about to be a new year. We try to maintain a high-level perspective and a low-level perspective because long-term, the trends of a inflating fiat system of a monetary standard that's built off of the debt of the United States and the United States government has every incentive to spend money like a drunken sailor until the end of time. And that's never worked out long term in history. Generally, empires, civilizations, countries, when they have a deep structural imbalance in financial markets that eventually undermines their real economy and their society. And that may or may not be happening in the United States today. At the same time, it's a non-zero risk. And when you're faced with a non-zero risk, you have to build it into your insurance, into your risk model. And Bitcoin is a part of that insurance for sure. Definitely. I, I don't think that's a controversial statement anymore. So very bullish on the future. Now let's go to Nigeria. So Nigeria is a really interesting country because of its massive population size, its young population, its dynamism, and also its kind of fundamental instability. My understanding, listening to some Nigerian podcasts and reading about it, is that there is just a huge amount of violence and poverty and lawlessness and corruption. I mean, it's just, it's very thick and very interesting. And so uh, I think Nigeria has come up on the show in the past because there was the NSARS movement. SARS was a special police unit. They were kind of like stormtroopers or commandos or something. And they were, uh, you know, they were like a very violent, very uh, brutally effective uh, policing unit that had a lot of special powers. And as a result, the members of these units were uh, just felt emboldened to be uh, very rough on their neighbors. And I think their behavior highlighted uh, violence against women in Nigeria. And that was part of the NSARS movement. And so part of that protest was the NSARS protesters were debanked and they started using Bitcoin to get donations. And as I've mentioned before, there's a history of Nigerians using Bitcoin to engage in international trade, early adopters in many ways. But on February 5th of this year, the Nigerian Central Bank ordered banks and financial institutions to extend no services to crypto entities. And I think there were several exchanges and, and Bitcoin businesses in Nigeria that were you know, really negatively impacted by that. But this has been rolled back. And now the Central Bank of Nigeria has new guidelines on the operation of bank accounts for VASPs, virtual asset service providers. I don't think there's a huge amount of information about this, but it's kind of interesting because wherever we've seen Bitcoin banned or, or you know, very kind of harsh anti-Bitcoin legislation, it often doesn't last long. And I think it suggests that the market wants crypto, the market wants Bitcoin. People want to interact with this. And when you have policy that fights against market forces, you have to pay a political cost. And also, I think that there is an incentive for the government, for institutions to engage with crypto, not necessarily because they have any belief in these ethos of decentralization and freedom and personal choice. I think it's more about there's a monetary opportunity here. And also, if we get involved, maybe we can control it. So it's kind of a double-edged sword in some ways. At the same time, probably good news for Nigerians generally. Now, we've talked a lot about Ocean Pool, which is a new Bitcoin mining pool that kind of has the goal of removing Bitcoin mining pools as a regulatory KYC choke point. 
And I think this is an awesome goal. It would be great if every mining pool had this philosophy. At the same time, there was controversy because the default Ocean Knots template, Knots is Luke Dasher's Bitcoin node implementation. It filters out inscription transactions and limits op return data to 42 bytes, which also disables some functionality like the Samurai coin join initial transaction that sort of sets up a Samurai coin join round. Now, it's interesting because Bitcoin Knots has a very small amount of Bitcoin hash rate, I think 0.1%, yet it has launched so much conversation about this topic. So I think in many ways, Bitcoin Knots, the ocean pool has been successful already, at least in shifting the conversation and really highlighting the problems with centralized mining pools. And just as a bit of a high level explainer, when we talk about Bitcoin mining, we often think of people who are hooking up mining units in their garage or in a warehouse or on a flare gas field in an oil field or something. And these hashers, these Bitcoin miners, the problem they face is that they have to buy physical equipment, get sources of power, set up all that infrastructure. But if they just try to find Bitcoin blocks on their own, their outcome, like finding a Bitcoin block, is incredibly random. It's a probabilistic process. It's a guessing game. And as a result, that's not really a business model. You need to have predictable cash flows for a business model. And as a result, you know, very early in Bitcoin's history, this thing called a mining pool was born. And a mining pool is generally a third party, a business. They might also have physical miners themselves, but the but it's not necessary. And the mining pool has a server. And if a miner points their hash, they start talking with this server. The mining pool will, will sort of divide the work of finding the next block up amongst all of the miners in their pool. And then they'll give, when they find a block, they'll use some logic to compensate all the miners who participated for their work. And so this turns mining into a business because now you have predictable payouts based on your hash rate. You don't just randomly win the lottery once every 40 years. And as such, I think that mining pools are here to stay. And there's been a lot of, and but, but what's the problem? The problem is that in the traditional mining pool model, the pool operator decides what's in the block. They get to choose transactions. They get to take fees. They also custody the fees for the miner. And so they have many opportunities to screw over miners or to engage in censorship. And they're an obvious target of regulation. Ocean Pool and other pools are working on protocols, one of which I think is called Stratum V2, which allows the pool to delegate the block creation to miners. And so now if the pool can just sort of handle the the payouts, the insurance, the sort of predictable payouts, and not actually control what's in the block, this removes the pool as a target for regulation and various other vectors of government control on Bitcoin mining. And that's just great. That's what we need in the end. We don't want, I don't think we want centralized corporate entities like Foundry Pool that want to be as compliant as possible as they can with US regulation to be deciding what's in Bitcoin blocks. Because maybe short term, that sort of super centralized, hyper-efficient approach might increase payouts for miners. But long term, I think that helps degrade the value proposition of Bitcoin and subvert it. So now Ocean Pool has multiple templates that they can provide. They don't yet have Stratum V2 working, so they can't put the template creation directly in the hands of the miners, but they have multiple templates you can work on. Some filter transcriptions, some don't. And I think, you know, minor choice, just a step in the right direction. I think it's, I think it's generally positive news. And I'm really glad Ocean showed up on the scene because they're causing a ruckus in a 
good way, in my opinion. Now, we have another banger of an article from Arthur Hayes. And I mean, I think he's really having a good Christmas because it's not very long. And he only spends about a few pages talking about his billionaire lifestyle and all of the delicious crab leg tempura he's eating. But he has a chart in here where he deflates currency hedge assets against the money supply. And what he's doing is he is he's calculating broad money in some way and then dividing the price of assets or their market cap against that. And he's got gold, Bitcoin, the S&P 500 index, the NASDAQ in there. And what it clearly demonstrates is that Bitcoin outperforms all of these other hedge assets by, you know, more than 3% or more than three times, you know, a huge, huge outperformance. And so the takeaway is just if you want to diversify your portfolio and protect yourself against fiat debasement, you've got Bitcoin for that. Nothing else works. And while gold theoretically should work because of its centralization, because it doesn't doesn't function as money anymore, because the majority is held, frankly, by central banks, including the Federal Reserve, it means that that is no longer a currency hedge. That system is being controlled by legacy finance and the central banks, and they don't want you to have protection against fiat debasement. That interferes with their monetary policy goals. And that's just data. That's not an opinion. So, no, I mean, I think this is a, an article you could probably send to your Bitcoin skeptic uncle, especially if he happens to hate Joe Biden. There are a lot of Joe Biden jokes in here. Arthur also wrote an essay called Bad Girl this year, you know, basically saying that Jay Powell is just Janet Yellen, the U.S. Treasury Secretary's towel boy. He's got to get online with the Treasury's goals of keeping the U.S. government working and funded. And he goes into the details of the recent Fed pivot, how it happened so fast, and you know what changed. And Arthur argues that what changed is politics. There are just political incentives for politicians to keep getting elected, no doubt, right? But if you were wondering why the U.S. was draining their strategic petroleum reserve when oil prices weren't crazy high, I mean, they were high, but they weren't crazy high over the past 18 months. Well, the answer is that was before the U.S. midterm elections. And that was an attempt to get inflation under control, to stop U.S. citizens and consumers from being freaked out about high gas prices, because high gas prices, high food prices, this is what gets the opposition in power in elections. And so, you know, when you're controlling the mechanisms of government, if you can juice the economy prior to elections, you would be foolish not to do it. Maybe principled, but but foolish in terms of getting reelected. And so there is every incentive for the U.S. executive branch to pressure the Treasury and the Fed into creating the most accommodative economic conditions prior to the election. And that likely means looser monetary policy, and if they can finagle it, lower energy prices. I think that energy prices are already falling due to a weak global economy, so they probably don't need to do much more there. But we have an election coming up, and so that generally means another financial market bubble, or at least pump. And as we've discussed, Bitcoin is likely the best asset in these conditions because it protects you from the invariable financial inflation that comes with those policies. Arthur also gets into some of the narratives that all of the altcoins are going to try to use to sell themselves in the next bull run. Permissioned DeFi, real world assets, uh, tokenized US government debt, things like that, the Bitcoin ETF. And I mean, I, I just don't even really want to get into it because I think that these are all in many ways quite obvious bad ideas. Okay, what is DeFi? DeFi is a way to do 
complex financial speculation outside of a regulated securities exchange. Why would you want to do that? Well, I mean, it's a great idea if you're an institutional trader or you're a sophisticated trader and you can play in the same market as retail apes because you can just take all their money. That's that's great. And those retail apes are prevented by financial regulation from playing in big boy regulated markets. And so you go to DeFi, you could just take all the stupid retail's money. That's how you do DeFi. Well, permission DeFi screws that up because now there's a permission moat around it. DeFi loses its real value proposition for traders, which is taking unsophisticated investors' money. Real-world assets on a blockchain. So dumb. So dumb. The There's no connection between a digital thing and the real world. As a result, that means that the you need a legal system to enforce the property rights of your digital token. Well, how is that decentralized? You know, how is technology solved that? You've just created another layer of complexity around that because there are, are going to be legal contracts that link the asset to the real world at, you know, thing and then you're you know, you're going to you're going to have to use the courts in like two steps now to have, enforce property rights on the asset that's represented by your blockchain token. Just it adds inefficiencies. Why not just own the thing yourself? And then the argument is, oh, well, but with this token, I can own one tenth of a house. Well, you know, good luck with that because houses are all unique. You know, they all have a unique location. They're all different sizes. They look different. They have different roofs, different plumbing, different problems, different value propositions. And you're trying to turn that into sort of like a homogenized, tradable commodity. Good luck. Good luck with that. It's a really stupid idea, in my opinion. And of course, the Bitcoin ETF. Well, I just don't think the Bitcoin ETF is really for Bitcoiners. I think it's for people who can't be bothered to understand Bitcoin or hold it or legally can't. And so they get to taste the price appreciation or the volatility while staying comfortable and ignorant in their brokerage account. Anyway, uh, short read. Definitely check it out if uh, that sounded interesting to you. Now let's get to some schadenfreude. Vitalik Buterin has a post on his blog about Ethereum proof of stake scalability, and basically it can't scale. I'm just going to read the snapshot that kind of summarizes the issues he's discussing here. He always throws in a bunch of very dubious math to maintain this kind of wunderkind genius persona. And I looked through a couple lines of it and thought, okay, well, you're making a lot of assumptions here, but I guess, whatever, man. Here we go. This approach requires the Ethereum chain to process a huge number of signatures, approximately 28,000 today, 1.8 million post SSF, which I guess is another one of their soft forks, per slot, which is a very high load. Supporting this load entails a lot of technical sacrifices. It requires a complicated attestation propagation mechanism involving attestations being split between multiple subnets, needing to hyper-optimize BLS signature operations to verify these signatures, etc. We don't have a clear drop-in quantum-resistant alternative that is anywhere near efficient enough. Fork choice fixes like view merge become more complicated because of the inability to extract individual signatures. Snarking the signatures is hard because there's so many of them. It also increases the safe minimum slot times by requiring three subslots instead of two. Okay, what is he saying here? I honestly don't know, but what he's describing is the the complicated technical workarounds to the fundamental weakness of the proof-of-stake model. This signature aggregation system feels reasonable at first glance, if you say so, man. Seems really needlessly complicated to me when proof-of-work already works, but okay, there you go. But in reality, it creates systemic complexity that bleeds out all over the place. Okay, I think that's the 
the gist. For the problem of making staking egalitarian, Ethereum currently violates this rule because we are simultaneously executing on two distinct strategies towards it. Small-scale solo staking and decentralized staking pools using distributed validator technology. A possible solution would be to raise the minimum deposit size to 4,096 Ethereum and make a total cap of 4,096 validators. Small-scale stakers would be expected to join a DVT pool either by providing capital or by being a node operator. To prevent abuse by attackers, the node operator role would need to be reputation-gated somehow, and pools would compete by providing different options in this regard. Oh, oh, now we're talking about permissioned node operation. So this is the trade-off between decentralization and efficiency. The most efficient way to run any kind of digital ledger system is to let me run it, or you can run it. We just need one person with a big computer and an efficient, optimized SQL database to record all our transactions. And if that entity is perfectly trustworthy, then we won't have a problem and we'll just have a good time. Except as we all know, those entities exist. They're called banks. They have some legacy technical debt issues that prevent them from being particularly efficient, but they have a lot of resources. They can run a lot of servers. And so, you know, it's a pretty, pretty okay experience for many people. Well, why did Satoshi create Bitcoin? It was to get away from this model. And now ETH has taken Bitcoin's innovation and it's now collapsing into a permissioned model with permissioned nodes. And that's to increase efficiency because the burden of their technical complexity has gotten out of hand. This is some pure schadenfreude right here. I don't know what else to say about this other than this doesn't work. This increases the regulatory burden on miners. It makes them easier to control by government authorities. And I think ETH has embraced its future as a pseudo-regulated system. Their development has always been centralized because of their pre-mine. There was always huge ETH whales, and those ETH whales you know, tried to diversify out of ETH without crashing the price by supporting the development of more protocols that encourage people to tie up their ETH so that smaller ETH holders couldn't dump their bags and they were instead staking ETH or putting it into smart contracts or something. I think ETH is a really interesting example of a pretty bad system that really managed to limp along and move fast and keep on trying to find the next thing to stay relevant. And yeah, in my opinion, the incentives were mainly driven by big whales that had big bags of ETH. And instead of just dumping it and killing Ethereum by driving its price to zero, they chose a long game of subsidizing Ethereum development and pushing development in a direction that would allow them to dump over time. And one of the costs of that is what Vitalik is describing. This technical debt, the complexity of their proof-of-stake model uh, means that they're having trouble validating all of the signatures that need to go into Ethereum blocks. And as a result, this means Ethereum just might not work if they don't do something. And so their solution is to increase efficiency by centralizing node operation and adding more trust to the system. Sounds a lot like banking. But if you want to listen to something much more interesting than banking discussions, I suggest you check out Chris's podcast, Coder Radio, produced under the Jupiter Broadcasting Network, where Chris and his co-host, Michael Dominic, talk about the art and business of software development. And they had a really interesting conversation in their last episode about the kind of fundamental conflict between businesses, especially large ones, trying to project manage and control developers and get them onto schedules and treat software development like a 
industrial process, when actually there's a lot of art and uh, artisanal craftsmanship in software development, a lot of subtlety there. And often because software developers have to add features at the last minute or later than they should be due to the demands of their customers or stakeholders, you know, this completely changes the development cycle. And as a result, software developers are always kind of overestimating the time everything takes because time estimation is not a linear process. When you get a time estimate wrong, it doesn't take half as much more time. It often takes a factor more time. And so it's it's a really interesting conversation if you're in that space. I really enjoyed it. Now let's talk about mining. Specifically, how do you run your own mining pool? And Seth for Privacy has a guide for you. And what he's doing is uh, basically sticking a pruned Bitcoin node on a VPS in somebody's cloud and installing a mining pool piece of software that he's pre-configured in a Docker container and teaching you how to add some firewall rules and configure Docker in a reasonably secure way. And I love posts like this because it's something that you can just pound out in your terminal in about 45 minutes and have something that probably works. I don't have a Bitcoin miner to point at a setup like this, so I can't test it myself. But if anyone does, give it a look. You're frankly probably not going to find a block on your own, but I think you can also add this to a public mining pool somehow. And so this might actually be a viable strategy if you are a miner and pointing at a centralized pool like Foundry that wants your passport details. This might allow you to mine in in, in a different pool. I think he's suggesting public pool, which uh, might not require so much violation of your privacy. Now, BTC Pay Server. BTC Pay Server is a super fun project. It actually grew out of the Bitcoin block size war because one of the companies behind the Segwit 2x upgrade that wanted to double Bitcoin's block size, gosh, was it BitPay or I forget the name of the company. They were doing something like BTC Pay Server. They were offering a service that you know merchants could subscribe with, and then this company was operating uh, Bitcoin nodes and, and letting them receive Bitcoin payments in the background. But they were also sort of choosing a Bitcoin fork and uh, you know kind of uh, voting their customers Bitcoin in a certain sense for a contentious hard fork. And so BTC Pay Server was born as a response to this, as a no, we can do it all ourselves. A business can run their own BTC Pay Server, and then they can be their their own bank for doing, you know, business operations like point of sale or holding a lightning or, or Bitcoin balance. And one of the advantages of the BTC pay server model is that it supports plugins. And so you can add additional functionality by adding a plugin. And one of these plugins was called LN Bank, and it basically turns your BTC pay server into a local bank. You can allow users to uh, register and then hold Bitcoin balances on your BTC pay server and uh, spend and receive. But there were uh, several vulnerabilities. And it turned out that people could open an account on a BTC pay server with LN Bank and then withdraw more than they had deposited by basically making multiple requests very fast. And because BTC pay server didn't have sort of a hardened, optimized process to sort of queue requests and check the balance, they could overwhelm this logic and end up double spending kind of and and just pulling more money out than they had put in. And as a result, the developer of the Ellen Bank plugin has decided to phase it out. I mean, this is a very difficult situation. You build something and then people lose money. 
It's really a bad feeling. And so I completely understand the sentiment. And there's going to be a lot of failures like this as a new open source banking and custody and financial infrastructure is built. And so it's a cautionary tale. It also highlights a really interesting project, a BTC Pay Server. And I, uh, yeah, I just support everyone involved with that. And uh, it's too bad that being at the cutting edge of financial technology means you are likely to lose money. That said, we all have as a result. And it's sort of the price you pay for finding something really interesting and uh, getting a little skin in the game. Remember, you can get in touch in the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com, at BitcoinDadPod on WeaponX. Sorry, I haven't checked the email since Christmas. So if you send an email and I don't read it out, my bad. I'll rectify that in the new year. We also have a Matrix channel and you can connect using a client like Element. Uh, details are in the show notes. And we had some boosts this week. We got our 3000 sat recurring subscription boost from Bob B. Thank you, Bob. Our only subscriber. Ask Bob about all the amazing subscriber benefits he's getting. TLDR, there are none. He's just being a great supporter of the show. And we also got 25 thousand sats from bitcoin lizard who is our baller booster of the week the lizard was listening to liquid courage psa for bitcoin node runners running version 26.0 of bitcoin core please enable support for the bip 324 v2 transport protocol bip 324 enables opportunistic encryption for communication between nodes the v1 transport protocol in use today is clear text and as a result communication between nodes using v1 can be viewed and tampered with by outside parties enable the new transport protocol in your bitcoin.com file today thank you for the psa bitcoin lizard and the boost i will certainly enable the v2 transport protocol once i remember what version of bitcoin core i am running i'm probably running an old version alex sent in 10,000 sats Thank you for the boost. The new fountain release definitely looks nice. There are bugs, but I plan to stay the course and file some helpful issues for the development team. I also love the idea of splitting in Optech and others if possible. Yes. So thank you for the message. Now, this podcast would love to add more splits, specifically Bitcoin Optech and No BS Bitcoin. I think they're really great news sources. And I have been trying to like find their lightning information and I've just not failed. I just failed to do it. I guess I have to reach out to them. So I need to do that because they definitely need support because they're doing great work. We also got 10,000 sats from Thought Criminal. Thank you for the boost. Happy holidays. Long live the dad pod. Well, I appreciate both the wishes and the sentiment. I hope we can stay the course. And I love the fact that thought criminals are listening to the podcast. Super fun. We also received 9,000 sats from user, very long name. That looks like an auto-generated name. Another great episode. Thanks. Got me enthused about Liquid. I love also your takes on the economy and hearing about financial dystopia. Incidentally, any good book recommendations? I just finished The Mandibles. Stank after chapter six. I'm starting Jim Rickard's Currency Wars now. Well, thank you so much for the boost. And if you like books about uh, finance and uh, economic dystopia, well, so I would recommend Helen Thompson's book, Disorder in the 21st Century. And it talks about the combination of monetary systems, financial incentives, and energy politics in a really interesting way. If you want something more directly financial market and money related, I would recommend a book called uh, Devil Take the Hindmost. It's a history of financial bubbles. It's really good. And there's also another book by the same author called The Price of Time that gets into interest rates. And it's really a funny book because the price of time is like, ah, oh, if only we had a pure asset to give us true interest rates. Ah, oh, 
And I'm like, Bitcoin, it's Bitcoin. Why can't you hear me? Well, thank you so much for the boost and the sentiment. We also got 3000 sats from Bitcoin Focus with no message, but the message is your support. Thank you so much, Bitcoin Focus. And a row of ducks, 2,222 sats from DPG listening to the show on my flight. I wonder if this boost gets through. It got through, DPG. Thank you so much for the support. If you get some value from this show, please consider sending a boost. Hearing from you means a lot to us. You can send a boost from the podcast index webpage without any podcasting 2.0 enabled podcast app. All you have to do is use Albi. I know they're being regulated right now. That sucks, but it is pretty easy. You can install Albi in your browser, find the Bitcoin Dad Pod on the podcast index page, and boost right there from the page. You can also send a one-off or reoccurring lightning boost with no message to our Albi accounts, or you can join the podcasting 2.0 revolution and get a podcasting 2.0 app like Fountain on Android, Podverse, which is cross-platform, and Castomatic on Apple. Links in the show notes. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, the last pod of 2023, episode 117, or maybe 116. I cannot remember. I'm getting confused with the numbering. It has been such a pleasure chatting with you all and receiving your messages. The purpose of this podcast was to discuss Bitcoin and economics and privacy and open source topics that are very close to my and Chris's values. And I'm so touched and thankful that other people share these values and interests and are interested in engaging with these subjects with us. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful and prosperous new year. See you next time.